This is from the Hekigan Local Case 1. The highest meaning of the holy truths. The pointer. When you see smoke on the other side of a mountain, you already know there is fire. When you see horns on the other side of a fence, right away you know there is an ox there. To understand three when one is raised, to judge precisely at a glance, this is the everyday food and drink of a patchrobe monk. Getting to where he cuts off the myriad streams, he is free to arise in the east and sink in the west, to go against or to go with, in any and all directions, free to give or to take away. But say, at just such a time, whose actions are these? Look at Zretu's trading vines. The case. Emperor Wu of Liang asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the highest meaning of the holy truth? Bodhidharma said, empty, without holiness. The emperor said, who is facing me? Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. The emperor did not understand. After this, Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River and came to the kingdom of Wei. Later, the emperor brought this up to Master Chi and asked him about it. Master Chi asked, does your majesty know who this person is? The emperor said, I don't know. Master Chi said, he is the Mahasattva Avalokiteshvara transmitting the Buddha mind seal. The emperor felt regretful, so he wanted to send an emissary to go invite Bodhidharma to return. Master Chi told him, Your Majesty, don't say that you will send someone to fetch him back. Even if everyone in the whole country were to go after him, he still would not return. There is a verse. The verse, The holy truths are empty. Who is facing me? How could he avoid the growth of a thicket of brambles? Wu goes on vainly reflecting back. Give up recollection. Is there any patriarch here? Call him here to wash this old monk's feet. So, it is uh, quite amazing to be back in person, some of us, or to be able to offer in-person practice and in-person Zazenkai. Last Zazenkai we held together in person was February last year, a long time. Quite different. Quite different. Maintaining a practice has many aspects, and one of them is always changing, adapting, adjusting, modifying, rather than thinking that practice has to be in a certain place, look, in a, look a certain way, sound a certain way. It is so important for all of us 
to stay away from such thinking and to look and to study, not to rely on what we know, but to look at what we don't know, to look at what we need to be doing in order to maintain the practice, in order to keep it alive for us, and of course in order to pass it on to future generations. So in the Teisho, during the last Zazenkai, which was not in person, I spoke in length about the life and teachings of Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen or the Zen tradition. And I mentioned his encounter with Emperor Wu, briefly mentioned that last time, upon his arrival to China. And this brief encounter later became a very famous koan in the Soto and Rinzai traditions since it captures the essence of Zen in the most direct way. And it offers us a great shortcut, great shortcut to connecting directly to the teachings of the Buddha with our everyday life. However, if we want to unlock the gate of this shortcut, we need to see the dialogue between Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu more as a koan rather than a story. Stories have details, and details can be mesmerizing to the mind. They can create many questions, which we answer and then create further questions. This is different. Koans are about looking behind or before the question. So looking at the story and asking whether or not it happened is not relevant to what this is teaching. Zen is a tradition that has been transmitted from generation to generation without reliance on words and scriptures. And at the same time, words, sutras, and discussions have always been an integrated part of the study and development and our training. So if it is a transmission outside words and scriptures, as Bodhidharma said, then why are there so many words? Why is there so much literature? Why are we reading so much, chanting so much? Then the answer to this lies in the, in the way we are seeing, or we have to look at the way we are seeing and not in what is being seen in the way we are hearing and not in that which is hearing what is being heard. For example, we're all here, we're all hearing the same thing, seeing the same thing, yet each of us has very different interpretations or inner dialogues about what you see, what you hear. How do we know which is right and which is wrong? You have 15 people, you have 15 different versions of a teisho, of a sight, of a sound, or whatever it is. How do we know? When we perceive a sight or a sound, it is immediately projected on the screen of the mind, then analyzed, judged, dissected, and sorted into the compartments that best fit the definition the mind attaches to it. 
kind of like an automatic sorting machine at the post office. And this process happens so quickly that there is almost no gap between the incoming stimulation and the label or interpretations the mind slaps on it. And this automatic process creates a huge gap between naked reality as it is and the way it is being perceived by our mind. It means that when we encounter something, a person, a bird, a situation, for a split second, we are actually fully engaged. For a split second. But in a flash, we are no longer seeing what is in front of us and become engaged in an inner dialogue that seems very real. In fact, it seems a lot more real than what we're hearing right now outside. Not just seems real, it becomes a lot more interesting for us. Of course, it gets very dicey when two people communicate with each other and each of them is more attentive to the conceptual version of the other person or for the other person is saying rather than the other person or rather than where it comes the words come from and it's, it makes it extremely challenging to listen wholeheartedly and to truly connect we think we know what we hear this is the crux of it we think we know we think, that's why we think we know. I know why he said this. I know why she, what she meant. I know what they did not mean. So that's the assumption. It is only an assumption. But for us, it's not an assumption. It is an absolute reality, absolute substantial reality from which we spring to action. So the thinking may be very well skewed and then what happens to the actions that follow this kind of thinking? Is it surprising that we have so much unrest, so many conflicts? It makes perfect sense. What happens in the Middle East makes perfect sense. What's been happening, and unfortunately, what will keep happening. It makes sense to both sides to keep doing what they're doing. then we, we may be looking at it and thinking, wow, this is terrible. We, there's got to be another way to live together. There is another way to live together, but it starts with us. That's why we have to look at the maneuvering of the mind. That's why we have to study ourselves. Because all of it is in us. That's all we need to study. It's all we need to look at. The thinking mind interacts with the world while operating in what we may call the realm of knowing. And it keeps creating more 
No. It is logical, it is organized, and it can be very useful. But the when we are misaligned or when mis misalignment arises, then there begins the issues. There begins all the problems and conflict. And the misalignment means misalignment with reality. Or we can say we have to know how to use the mind. Do we know how to use it? And the misalignment arises when we become attached to the known, find comfort in it, and fear, though develop fear of the unknown. So we end up favoring an imagined, limited, and familiar version of reality over what is unknown, unhindered, or wide open. And quite scary at that point. And we end up favoring what is static and lifeless over what is dynamic and full of life. Knowing is dead. It's not relying on what is, it's relying on what was. <coughs> it's lifeless. Yet we derive so much comfort from it so much sense of stability. So we have to see the mechanism or these mechanisms. We have to study it, understand how to work with it, and gently, gently open ourselves up to the unknown, further and further and further. This koan may offer us a way out of the mind into reality. Emperor Wu asked, of Liang asked, the great master Bodhidharma, what is the highest meaning of the holy truth? And Bodhidharma said, empty without holiness. You may remember from the previous stage show, the dialogue between Prajnatala and Bodhidharma, when she asked him about that which surpasses all things. A similar question. She asked, what among all things is formless? And Bodhidharma was his name before, said, non-origination is formless. Prajnatala asked, what among all things is greatest? Bodhidharma said, the nature of reality is greatest. The nature of reality is greatest. What is that? Where is it? What is he talking about? The nature of reality. How do we look into the nature of reality? Well, look no further. Turn it around. Are we not reality? Are we observers of reality? Are we just on the outside or the outskirts of reality? What are we? You ask the mind, the mind will give a very quick answer. Then don't ask the mind. 
Or don't ask at all, just look. So Bodhidharma said, the nature of reality is greatest. And even, even then, already, Bodhidharma, Tara already spoke from being aligned with the truth of emptiness or nothingness. And so it was clear to him that the true nature of reality surpasses anything we can think of, speak about, or create. He was already aware of the true freedom that comes from embracing, not knowing. In the commentary, it says, from afar, Bodhidharma saw this country, China. He saw that this country had people capable of the great vehicle. So he came by sea, intent on his mission, purely to transmit the mind seal, to arouse and instruct those mired in delusion, us, now, today. Without establishing written words, he pointed directly to the human mind for them to see nature and fulfill Buddhahood. If you can see this way, then you will have your share of freedom. Never again will you be turned around pursuing words, and everything will be completely revealed. Thereafter, you will be able to converse with Emperor Wu and you will naturally be able to see how the second patriarch's mind was pacified. That's talking about Huike. Different koan, or from a different koan. So if you, if you can see this way, then you will also have your share of freedom and you will never be turned around pursuing words or pursuing thoughts, or pursuing interpretations of what we see. Because that's what we pursue. That's what we become enamored by. Passing thoughts, rising, vanishing, arising, vanishing, again and again and again. And we grope in the dark, grasping them, only to realize that we can't thinking, well, maybe I'm not grasping hard enough. Or maybe something's wrong with my hand. So Buddhism, just a bit of background, arrived to China around the second, third century. And Emperor Wu was instrumental in the propagation of this new religion in his country. He helped in, in the establishment of monasteries, supported the practice, and facilitated many Buddhist ordinations. So being so involved in spreading Buddhism and being a devout practitioner, he must have felt vested in the path and wanted to gain deeper understanding. So his question, what is the highest meaning of the holy truth, seems appropriate. And the footnote to that question says, what a donkey-theathering stake this is. And this is referring to Wu's stagnant state of mind, or our stagnant state of mind, to his conceptualization of Buddhism, 
or to the notion that knowing will set us free. If only I knew more, then I will be free. I, I'm, I feel stuck. Well, maybe because I don't know enough. Maybe I'm envious of other people who I think know more than me. If only I would know. So the notion of knowing or the knowing will set us free. Our fixation of, on a self, of a self, and attachments to ideas are essentially the donkey tethering stake that holds us back from directly experiencing reality. What is that stake made of? What is holding us back? So Bodhidharma looked at Emperor Wu and without hesitation he answered, empty, without any shred of holiness. Whatever you think it is, it is not. Whatever you have made of it in your mind, that's not what it is. That's only your interpretation. Or maybe it is what we want it to be. So there comes Bodhidharma and shatters it. Pulls the rug under our feet. Telling us to look again. Telling us to open the eye. So he says, empty, without any holiness. Maybe he crushed Wu's ideas about Buddhism. Maybe even made him feel regretful for putting all the efforts and financial resources of his country into promoting this practice. There's nothing about it. What have I done with all this? All my money, all my efforts, all the time I spent. Maybe it was all for in vain. Maybe it was all for nothing. Maybe it was all for nothing. Wouldn't that be amazing? If at the end we realize all our efforts are for nothing. So one way to hear this answer is that, is well, I better go do something else because this is not worthy of my time and efforts. The other way is to realize that we can be instantly re relieved from carrying around the burden of our thoughts and ideas wherever we go. Maybe I don't have to create and grasp interpretation. Maybe it's not what I think it is. And maybe that's a relief. Hakuin said, commenting on this, saying, the holy truths are empty. When asked about the highest meaning, he answered that it is empty, without holiness, making a horrifying mixture of ghee and poison. Swallow this, and it will cure sickness. Swallow this and it will cure sickness. 
empty, without holiness. Also empty without any thoughts, interpretations, ideas, opinions. Just empty. That will cure many unnecessary conflicts. It'll put them to an end. Have you ever seen two people fight over nothing? Two countries fight over nothing? Of course not. We don't fight over, we fight over something. But then what happens when we realize that the something is essentially nothing? Wouldn't that put an end to the fight? We make something out of nothing as human beings. And our practice is to make nothing out of something. Or realize the nothingness in the somethingness. Hearing the word emptiness from the realm of thought can be terrifying, as Hakuin says. Hearing it with the entire body is healing and deeply liberating. How did Emperor Wu hear this? Now we have to keep in mind Emperor Wu was a devout practitioner who was quite vested in the tradition. And so hearing this, that this is empty and there is nothing holy about it, probably was a blow to what he was vested in. What does it mean to be a devout practitioner and to be committed to the tradition? What does it mean to be vested in something? When we are vested in an idea or vested in a path that essentially becomes an idea in our head, are we actually following the tradition? Are we actually following a path? Or are we following the thoughts and notions of the path? And then someone comes and says, look at the path and look at what you are doing to cover it up. How would you feel if somebody takes away all your thoughts, all your ideas about Zen and will ask you, now begin again. Can you begin again? For now, maybe you can really begin. How much have we accumulated up to this point? How much do we think we know about Zen? Because all that needs to be thrown away or at least abandoned. That's why we say to everybody, all of us, to ourselves, every time we sit down for Zazen, put it down. Put everything down. Take away the burden of everything you think you know. It is a burden. You put it down. Let the ground carry it for you. You don't have to carry it. And when you put it down, it doesn't cover anything. 
It doesn't hinder. It doesn't get in the way. And it doesn't prevent us from truly experiencing this moment. Bodhidharma said, to find the Buddha, you have to see your nature. Or the nature of reality, which is the same. Whoever sees this nature is a Buddha. If you don't see your nature, invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings and keeping precepts are all useless. And you remember that from different times I've quoted from this. And basically all he's saying here is that it's a waste of time to follow a path dogmatically. It can be a waste of time to sit in Zazen. But it's not the waste of time that we think of. It's different kind of waste. It is a shame. Because if we are reciting with this mindset, then we are doing everything else with that same mindset. Which means we are surrounding ourselves with high walls of what we think we know. Being imprisoned by our own accumulated knowledge. Thinking that the walls of our knowledge will protect us. They don't. They can't. There's no need to. And what Bodhidharma is asking us is to examine our relationship with the practice so we can recognize if we are vested in what we think it is or in how we believe we should look like as practitioners. Whether it's zazen, chanting, bowing, offering incense, all of it, can be useless if we do it all for the sake of becoming enlightened or accumulating merits or arriving elsewhere. Sitting, connecting the butt to a cushion cannot transport you or us from this to becoming a Buddha. It will not transform us. In fact, to be vested in becoming a Buddha is to reject the Buddha. To be vested in later is to reject the living reality of our existence. Then the emperor said, Who is facing me? And Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. So first emperor heard that the highest meaning of the holy truth is empty and is devoid of any holiness. And then he heard that the person who is supposed to be some kind of authority in Buddhism doesn't even know who he is. What does it mean to not know? What is no thing? Of being so accustomed 
to a chiseled and, and defined sense of self, we find comfort in the realm of thingness. And we encounter a great deal of fear in the realm of nothingness. And we work very hard to be recognized as someone by ourselves, by others. So even the thought about being nobody can seem terrifying to us. What does it mean to not know? Think about the last almost year and a half or what we encountered last year in March. What did we know? Nothing. Did we know that this will be our new reality? Of course not. Now look at what we have learned, just us as a small Sangha. We have done so much with it. Not because of what we knew before it happened, because we were willing to look at it, study it, understand how to move through this new reality, and discover. Discover what we don't know. Forget what we knew. Forget the known and turn to the unknown and allow it to guide us. Allow it to guide us. And personally, I, it was incredible. It was an incredible journey to delve into it, to try to understand how do we function together. Well, luckily for the Sangha, we can function together on Zoom as well for a while, which is good. Aikido is a different story. There, there, are Zoom, there were Zoom classes doesn't really go that far. So in order for us to keep practicing, we had to sit down, examine what can we do? Do some research. Open up. And we did it. And it was incredible. That's moment by moment. Life, it's always fresh. Only if we are willing to put away or to put aside, relying on what we know, or giving so much importance to what we know, then we can learn. We can learn until the last breath of our life. We can learn. And maybe we can learn to live together better. The practice of Zen is the practice of realizing interdependent origination. Sounds like a lot, but basically all it means is that we are one and the same. It means that nothing exists unto itself, and therefore all things are empty of independent existence. That is the true understanding of emptiness or nothingness. This is why in Zen we say that nothing is, nothing can be, or nothing is far greater than anything, than something. Nothing is always greater, is always more powerful, is always indestructible. 
And therefore, being nobody is far greater than being somebody. Now, if we walk around with the definition of a self, we are also defining what we are not. I am this, therefore I am not that. And I'm limiting myself to that definition. Affirmation is negation. Which means is if I'm this, how can I be that? And this way of thinking creates a very defined, a seeming defined gap between self and other, black and white, in and out, deluded, enlightened, straight, gay, and so on. The realm of knowing becomes the source of discrimination. And from there, the road to hatred and rejection is actually quite short. We believe what we see. We believe the interpretations that the mind slaps on what we hear. And the challenging times we, we live in reflect our grasping of the known and familiar and our deep fear of what we don't know or don't understand. I'm sure you follow the news and you're aware of the recent rise on the anti-LGBTQ legislation across the country. They're freaking out. And that's what it is. They're freaking out of people. Not knowing what to do. Wanting to grasp for dear life on the known. This is our madness in real time. And here's a short paragraph from an article I read, I think it was a week or two ago. It says, with an unprecedented number of anti-LGBTQ measures sweeping through the through state legislatures across the country, 2021 is on the cusp of surpassing 2015 as the worst year for anti-LGBTQ legislation in recent history. According to a new tracking and analysis by Human Rights Campaign, eight anti-LGBTQ bills have already been enacted into law and another 10 are already on governor's desk awaiting signature. If signed into law, more anti-LGBTQ legislation will have been enacted this year than in the last three years combined. Are we hearing it? Or are we deaf? Do we understand why this happens? Do we understand that this is madness, is the question. It, it, the road from this to killing each other is not as far as we think it is. We want to believe that this is okay, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. Yeah, it's all fine. Even killing each other is fine, I guess. But we have to see it. We have to understand the danger of knowing. It is dangerous for us as human beings. We think that if we don't understand something, or if that thing doesn't look like me, then it should be rejected. 
shunned, pushed away. That's how we think. Because we don't know what to do with the unknown. We don't know how to function within it. If we're looking for reasons to keep practice alive, let that be the reason. Why it is so important to bring some sanity to this madness. We are so obsessed with protecting our miserable sense of self. And it is exactly that. And what we have become identified with, that we find anything outside of this small bubble to be threatening to our existence. If it doesn't look like me, it is something to be annihilated. If it doesn't sound like me, we should push it away, reject it. It is insane, but this insanity finds a way to become legislation and rejecting each other becomes protected by law. People feel justified to reject. All we have to do is pass the legislation and give green light to hatred. Why not? Works. And the practice is asking us to examine the validity and solidity of who we think we are or what we have become identified with or attached to so we can realize the bondage of conceptual knowing, the harmful bondage of conceptual knowing and from there experience the liberations, the liberation that comes with or from resting in not knowing who we are. Because if we don't know, why would we be threatened, or how can we feel threatened by anything or anyone? The only thing that's being threatened is the idea of me. Only concepts are being threatened. In Being Upright, Reb Anderson writes, if you study the self and clearly see that it is nothing more than a word, you will see that it lacks an independent self-nature. You will see. With this insight, selfish motives are exposed and dropped. This legislation is selfish, is fueled by selfish motives. We have to connect the dots between our practice and the madness in our country and around the world. And then he says, in the realm of Dharma, ignoring the dependent core rising of self or interdependent origination is the equivalent of original sin. It is the fundamental human disaster, is it not? That's the reason. That's the crux of it.
Rishonim said, irony about our obsession with holding on to a separate sense of self is that as hard as we try to protect it, at the end, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I protect me and my kind. Well, guess what? You are disintegrating. You can't protect it. You will die. You are falling apart. Or maybe that's the reason. Maybe we are refusing to accept the fact that we are only here for a short period of time in this body. Refusing to accept impermanence. Ignoring our interdependent origination will not conquer impermanence. It only leads to further suffering. In the introduction, it says, when you see smoke on the other side of the mountain, you already know there is fire. When you see horns on the other side of a fence, right away you know there is an ox there. To understand three when one is raised, to judge precisely at a glance. This is the everyday food and drink of a patriarch monk. If, if I look at myself and I see that the eye is empty of being separate entity, so is the other. If the holy truth is empty of separate existence, so am I. Wherever we look, if we observe, if we truly observe intently, we will arrive at the same conclusion. Nothing exists unto itself. Everything affects everything. When one corner is raised, the other three corners are instantly realized. If we want to put an end to the madness, we have to turn it around and examine the root of madness. The root of madness is in us. And when we arrive at that, we find the cure. So the question is, how do we merge our unique and short-lived existence with the timeless and fundamental truth of reality? And that debate was what brought Emperor Wu to ask his question. You can move for a second if you want. I forget there's tea here. Thank you, Kyoto. In the commentary, it says, Emperor Wu held discussions with Dharma Master Lu Yue and Ma Satva Fu and uh, Prince Chao Ming about the two truths, the real and the conventional. As it says in the teachings, by the real truth, we understand that it is not existent. By the conventional truth, we understand that it is not non-existent. 
that the real truth and the conventional truth are not two, is the highest meaning of the holy truth. This is the most esoteric, most obtruse point of the doctrinal schools. Hence, the emperor picked out this ultimate paradigm to ask Bodhidharma. What is the highest meaning of the holy truth? Bodhidharma answered, empty without holiness. So that the real truth and the conventional truth are not two. This is the highest meaning of the holy truth. And that is the ultimate. To merge the conventional reality with the fundamental reality, with the ultimate. <clears throat> Nan Quan, famous Chinese Zen master, Joshua's teacher, said, knowing is delusion, not knowing is blank consciousness. And the key lies in knowing that does not know itself. Or in other words, do not create anything from, do not create a person from the known. If we don't create a person from the known, then there's nobody there to protect. There's nobody there to create a wall or to build a wall between self and other. And then the known can be helpful. So instead of feeling as if there is a need to choose between knowing and not knowing, or existence and non-existence, form and formless, we need to recognize that these are not two, and they are one, the two aspects of one reality. So there's no need to get trapped in neither one of these aspects. There's no need to look for the way to move from form to formless or back to form. Again, if we want to understand, all we have to do is look. How do we look? How do we look when the eyes see outwardly? How do we turn it around? And the key or the gate is to let go on of the known and put it aside for a while. The eyes see, the mind interprets, and the actions follow. When this mechanism or this repetitive cyclic mechanism is let go for a while, then something else emerges. Different kind of truth emerges. You know, we say differentiation without equality is wrong differentiation. Equality without differentiation is wrong equality. If all we see is that we are one, without realizing that we're also different, there is a problem with that. If all we see is that we are different, we are not realizing that we are one, there is a problem with that too. The conventional and the essential are inseparable, even when it feels as if there is a gap or they are separated. We are always unified, even when we feel disconnected and alienated. 
But when we don't realize and embody reality in this complete way, then the conventional truth prevails and life becomes difficult, heavy, sticky. We become misaligned, fearful, sluggish, clouded. And we cause a great deal of suffering through harmful actions that originate in a discriminating consciousness. That's all we see, that's all there is. That leads to madness. On the other side of that, when the conventional and the essential, the holy and the mundane, the one and the many, are experienced as one seamless reality, then what is rigid becomes fluid. Fear gives way to trust. Discrimination changes into acceptance, intolerance, hatred is transformed to love. All directions become wide open. So the second part of the Quran says, Later, the emperor brought this up to Master Chi and asked him about it. Master Chi asked, does your majesty know who this man is? The emperor said, I don't know. Master Chi said, this is the Mahasattva Avalokiteshvara transmitting the Buddha mind seal. So when Emperor Wu asked Bodhidharma, who are you? Bodhidharma said, I don't know. When Master Chi asked Wu if he knew who this person was, he also said, I don't know. They both gave the same answer. Is it the same or is it different? When I don't know but I believe that I need to know, I may feel confused, lost, regretful, stuck, unworthy, limited, powerless. When I don't know comes from a sense of interconnectedness and a realization that it is essentially unknowable, then the need to know drops away and the great vastness becomes our playground, leaving us with a sense of great ease and incredible power. Incredible power to love. or having the guts to love rather than to hate. When we know, we are limited to what we know. When we don't know, we are instantly expanding to include the entire universe. And it says the emperor felt regretful, so he wanted to send an emissary to go invite Bodhidharma to return. And Master Chi told him, Your Majesty, don't say that you will send someone to fetch him. Even if everyone in the whole country were to go after him, he still would not return. What do we do with regrets? When the moment passes, the opportunity is lost. We can't go back and fix it. We can't redo it or undo it. 
opportunity is all lost. We can dwell in that or we can wake up to the living opportunity of this moment. And of course there's also the fundamental point which Bodhidharma expressed through his embodiment and Emperor Wu totally missed. We can't go back and, back and look for that because it is right here. So never mind what we have done. Never mind the chaos we have created. Never mind the suffering and the pain we have inflicted on each other up to this moment. It's got to be never mind that. Well, here is an opportunity to embrace each other, to love, to support, to be there for one another. That's how we show up for ourselves. To put the other first is to put us first. So Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River and disappeared. Tenke, and then there actually another translation, it says that Bodhidharma crossed the river in the dark. And Tenke commented on this saying, the word dark is extremely subtle. It does not simply mean that in all the times that Zen master crossed the river because the emperor did not understand. It, it is also the same today the moment you start thinking thus and so, already the Zen master has crossed the river in the dark. So far gone, you can't tell where he is. Because if we look, we can't find. And we are as if groping in the dark. If we look, we can't find. Because the looking is based on an assumption that there is something else to find or on an assumption that there is something. Therefore, we grope in the dark. After Bodhidharma's death, Emperor Wu mourned and personally wrote an inscription for his monument, and it read, Alas, I saw him without seeing him. I met him without meeting him. I encountered him without encountering him. How relevant is that for us? We look without looking. We see without seeing, because all we see is what we bring with us. All we see is the known that comes with us to the moment we encounter something. How can we see what we encounter? How can we have a dialogue with anybody? We're not even seeing each other. We're only seeing labels, concepts. Then he says, now as before, I regret this deeply. He further eulogized him by saying, if your mind exists, 
you are stuck in the mundane for eternity. If your mind does not exist, you experience wonders, enlightenment instantly. So what is Zen? No. That's it. One word. You get it. The holy truths are empty. How can you discern the point? Who is facing me? Again he said, I don't know. Henceforth he secretly crossed the river. How could he avoid the growth of a thicket of brambles? Can we avoid? Can we avoid creating or meeting complications? Though everyone in the whole country goes after him, he will not return. Wu goes on vainly reflecting back. And then it says, give up recollection. What limit is there to the pure wind circling the earth? Please let go. Let go of anything that crosses the mind. Any thought, any interpretation, as soon as it arises, relinquish, drop it. Because there is no limit to the pure wind circling the earth. Masters Retu looked around, looked to the right and left and said, is there any patriarch here? Well, you can look to your right, you can look to your left and ask. Who is the patriarch? Where is Bodhidharma? And then he answered, there is. Call him here to wash this old monk's feet. Put him to work for the sake of others. Hakuin commented on this koan, the holy truths are empty. When asked about the highest meaning, he says, empty, without holiness. And again, this is worth mentioning. Making this mixture of ghee and poison, swallow this and it will cure sickness. So where is Bodhidharma right now? We are finishing three months ago working with wholeheartedness. The ultimate meaning of wholeheartedness comes down to fully letting go and wholeheartedly embracing not knowing. That is true freedom. 